Greetings, friends. As we read together through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we're getting into a sequence which all has to do with the opening of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The sermon we're looking at today was the first sermon in the Tabernacle. That's both its description and its title. It was delivered on Monday afternoon, 25th of March, 1861, and the text was Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot of uh, public meetings that are being recorded at this time. Uh, There's a lot of public interest in what's taking place. There are a lot of other preachers who are contributing now to the series as they uh, make contributions to the opening of the tabernacle and its services. So we're going to try and stick with Spurgeon's sermons, and that makes it just a little tricky because there's some good other stuff in there. And incidentally, there are some other contributions that make you think, now we know why Spurgeon was appreciated by the common man, even though we've sometimes had occasion to, to say that he's not quite as straightforward uh, as we might have imagined, given his reputation. And there's a lot of florid speech, a lot of just wordiness over the course of these next few addresses uh, with regard to the building itself. Uh, really, by our standards, a little bit on the wearying side. Uh, and that may say something about our patience as much as about uh, their wordiness. But when you read some of the other preachers, at least one or two of them, you're left thinking, my eyes, that's, that's quite a mouthful uh, in terms of actually following along with what he's saying you then realise what a straightforward sermon uh, preacher Spurgeon is by comparison. But this is the first sermon in the building. And Spurgeon says, as he begins, I don't think you can understand how I feel. He says, actually, I feel totally unable to preach. I think at the end of this sermon, any preacher is going to say, I wish I felt that unable to preach sometimes if that's what happens. His text is Acts 5.42, as we've said, and he tells us that in the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once in one word to give the sum and substance of the current theology. It was Christ Jesus. Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe Christ. If you had requested him to show you his body of divinity, that's a, a sort of a technical phrase for a systematic theology, he would have pointed upward, reminding you that divinity never had but one body, the suffering and crucified human frame of Jesus Christ, who ascended up on high. To them, then, Christ was not a notion refined, but unsubstantial, not an historical personage who had left only the savour of his character behind, but whose person was dead. To them, he was not a set of ideas, not a creed, not an incarnation or an abstract theory, but he was a person one whom some of them had seen, whose hands they had handled, nay, one of whose flesh they had all been made to eat, and of whose blood they had spiritually been made to drink. Christ was substance to them. I fear he is too often but shadow to us. He was a reality to their minds, to us, though perhaps we would scarcely allow it in so many words, rather a myth than a man, rather a person who was than he who was and is and is to come the Almighty. That's Spurgeon's opening gambit, really. And then these extremely well-known words, quite famous in terms of Spurgeon's output. 
I would propose, and oh, may the Lord grant us grace to carry out that proposition from which no Christian can dissent, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, though I claim to be rather a Calvinist according to Calvin than after the modern debased fashion. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. You have there, pointing to the baptistry, substantial evidence that I am not ashamed of that ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerable predecessor, Dr. Gill, that's John Gill, has left a body of divinity, admirable and excellent in its way. But the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system of divinity or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Now that's the introduction to something that he can't do, which is preach. I think if any of us were who seek to preach were were able to even speak of Christ in that way, at the, the end of a, a hundredth sermon, we would be glad by God to be able to do so. So Spurgeon wants the subject, Christ Jesus, then the comprehensiveness of that subject, then its excellencies, and finally its power. And this really is, to my mind, at least uh, a magnificent statement of Jesus Christ. The subject then, to preach Christ aright, we must preach him in his infinite and indisputable Godhead, his true humanity, as the only mediator, as the sole redeemer, as the only lawgiver and rabbi of the church, as the sole king of the church, as the king of kings and we must bring Christ himself back into the camp. So, we must preach Christ, and that means preaching about Christ and everything that Christ is. To preach Christ aright, we must preach him in his infinite and indisputable Godhead. Take away the divinity of Christ from the gospel, says Spurgeon, and you have nothing whatever left upon which the anxious soul can rest. Remove the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God, and the Jachin and Boaz of the temple, the, the two supporting pillars, are overturned. Without a divine saviour, your gospel is a rope of sand, a bubble, a something less substantial than a dream. Christ must be preached then as very God of very God, as the eternal Son, as the one who is truly divine in all that he is, as God. But alongside of that, Christ must be preached also as truly human. And he quotes Joseph Hart's hymn, A man there was, a real man, who once on Calvary died. And now he emphasizes that he who was and remains God nevertheless became man. It is a personal Christ, not just a doctrinal, practical, or experimental Christ, but a personal Christ, one who is real, one who is a man like us. And whatever else we do not preach, we must preach him, the real personality of the Redeemer in his complex person, that is, as God and man in two distinct natures, 
and one person forever. To preach Christ is to preach one who is God and man. And that God-man further must be proclaimed as the only mediator between God and man. Never for a moment denying that every man is bound to make supplication, yet there is only one mediator in heavens, in the heavens, only one direct intercessor with God, and it is the man Christ Jesus. You cannot come to God except by him. He must be the priest, the altar, the victim, the offerer. We must learn in full, says Spurgeon, the meaning of that precious text that Christ is all. We must understand the whole concerning him and not allow any approaches to be made in human strength, by human learning or by human effort. And so he comes particularly now to the solitariness, as he puts it, of Christ's redemption work. That is, that in the matter of salvation, that this one mediator must be allowed to have done all the work that there is no contribution that we can make to the atoning work of Jesus Christ, not that needs to be made, not that can be attempted to be made. We do not preach Christ unless we have a real atonement, a full and final sacrifice for sins. I have no kith nor kin, says Spurgeon, nor friendship, nor Christian amity, that is, a love and affection, with any man whatever who claims to be a Christian and yet denies the atonement. There is a limit to the charity of Christians, and there can be none whatever entertained to the man who is dishonest enough to occupy a Christian pulpit and to deny Christ. Spurgeon says, what is it about Christians that they are willing to let go of the very thing which distinguishes and defines us, that we are willing to, as it were, accept the blasphemy of a Christ who doesn't actually save and still say that that's a demonstration of Christian charity. No, that's most wicked. That's most deadly. It's Christ in the efficacy of his precious blood as the only redeemer of the souls of men and the only mediator who, without assistance of ours, has brought us to God and made reconciliation through his blood. Then Christ as the only lawgiver and rabbi or teacher of the church that no one but Christ can guide and govern the church. No one but Christ can tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ, so that our faith stands not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And so it is not the writings of Dr. So-and-so and Dr. Such-and-such, it is the words of Christ which are true. You bring me authority from the practice of a church three or four centuries removed from the crucifixion as the proof of the existence of a certain ceremony and the righteousness of certain ecclesiastical offices. What's your proof worth, says Spurgeon? Has Christ spoken? Christ is the teacher. He is the lawgiver. He is the instructor. And what we do must be done in accordance with his word. So, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And for Spurgeon, as for myself, that's baptism by immersion of believers and the Lord's table. People who know Christ coming together in the church in order to eat the family meal together. Now, any person, says Spurgeon, who practices a ceremony for which he has not scriptural authority should renounce it. And any man who preaches a doctrine for which he has not Christ as his certifier, should not demand for it the faith of men. 
And then that bleeds on into the fact that we must preach Christ as the sole king of the church. And this is not so much Christ as ruler then within his church, but Christ as ruler despite the other authorities that might wish to impose upon the church. No king, no queen that ever lived or can live has any authority whatsoever over the church of Christ. The church has none to govern and rule over her but her Lord and her king. Yes, Spurgeon is a real dissenter. He's a true nonconformist. Whatever respect he has for the authorities which God has instituted in the world, the church can suffer, he says, but she cannot yield. You may break her confessors alive upon the wheel, but she in her uprightness will neither bend nor bow. There is no king, there is no queen, there is no prime minister, there is no president, there is no potentate outside of Jesus Christ who rules in the church. He acknowledges, if any of our acts violate the civil laws, we are men and citizens and we acknowledge the right of a state to govern us as individuals. None of us wish to be less subjects of the realm because we are kings and priests unto God. But, he says, as members of Christian churches, we maintain that the excommunication of a Christian church can never be reversed by the civil power or by any state act, nor are its censures to be examined, much less to be removed, mitigated or even judged. We must have, as Christ's church, a full recognition of his imperial rights, and the day will come when the state will not only tolerate us as a mere society, but admit that as we profess to be the church of Christ, we have a right by that very fact to be self-governing and never to be interfered with in any sense whatever, as far so far as our ecclesiastical affairs are concerned. Well, he might have been overreaching himself a little bit there with that assurance, but I think there's a interesting point certainly being made here and a necessary one in our days when it seems as if the church is either not willing to righteously exercise its power or rather calls upon people from outside to come in and do the church's business for it. No, says Spurgeon, Christ is the sole king of the church and the church should act as his people. And then, furthermore, we have not yet mounted to the full height of our ministry unless we learn to preach Christ as the King of Kings, he who has an absolute right to the entire dominion of this world. We have a perfect right in God's name to preach upon any subject touching the Lord's kingdom and to rebuke and exhort even the greatest of men. Well, if Christ if Christ's reign touches everything, then we bring Christ's reign to bear as it touches all those things. Now, this is not about intruding where the church does not belong, but speaking where Christ speaks. So you send out your missionary, not as a petitioner to creep at the feet of princes, but as an ambassador for God to make peace between God and man, claiming the possession which belongs to you as servants of the King of Kings. And that means, says Spurgeon, that we need Christ himself back in the camp. For it's of little use having our true Jerusalem swords and shields and banners and trumpets and drums. We want the King himself in the midst of us. More and more of a personal Christ is the great lack of the time. I would not wish for less doctrine, less experience or less practice, but more of all this put into Christ and Christ preached 
not just about Christ, but Christ himself preached as the sum and substance of it all. That brings him secondly, and we need to hurry on with Spurgeon to the comprehensiveness of this subject, Jesus Christ. Now he mentions the suggestion that you can divide preachers into three different kinds, the doctrinal, the experimental, and the practical. And he says that's fair enough, but it's a problem because where is the preacher of Christ in the doctrinal, the experimental, and the practical preacher? Now listen to what he says. The doctrinal preacher generally has a limited range. The danger of simply preaching doctrine is that you can be sound, but sound asleep. That you can end up not with love, but with bitterness. Because in contending earnestly for the faith, you learn to contend not only earnestly, but savagely. If all you're taken up with is getting it right, then you will attack everybody else because they are getting it wrong and you will end up with this pride and this anger. What about then the experimental preacher? That's delightful, he says. Perhaps of all ministries, this one is the most useful. But you end up perhaps then with men who think the deformities of God's people are their beauty. That is, that you can harp on about certain uh, difficulties or deformities or sins in God's people. So to preach experimentally means often to emphasize the corruption of the human heart. And so, because the minister preaches doubts and fears, because he's constantly bewailing what is lacking in us, those who hear him feel that they must doubt and fear. And that which is uncomfortable to themselves and dishonoring to God comes to be thought of as the very mark of God's people. And this is the tendency of experimental preaching, however judiciously managed, when ministers harp on that string and on that alone. The tendency is either to preach the people into a soft and savoury state in which there's not a bit of manliness or might, or else into that dead and rotten state in which corruption outswells communion and the savour is not the the savour is not the perfume of the king's ointments, but the stench of a corrupt and filthy heart. So then the experimental preacher perhaps turns people too much into themselves. It makes them introverted. What about the practical preacher? who stirs the people up, who calls them to labour and to serve, all well and good. But the trouble is, says Spurgeon, that you can be hammering away at people who are saying, well, what do I have to then do, do and do? And, and, and it seems as if my salvation and my service consist nothing, nothing except my own efforts. Ah, says Spurgeon, let them feed the people with food convenient for them and they'll be practical enough. But all practice and no promise, all exhortation and no sound doctrine will never actually make the man of God perfect and zealous for good works. Now you notice that Spurgeon isn't saying don't preach doctrine, don't preach experience and don't preach practice or duty. What he is saying is this, that one minister can preach all of that without the dangers of any one, but with the excellencies of the whole, if he preaches Christ. Because the man who preaches Christ's person must preach doctrine. 
The man who preaches Christ must preach the love of his heart. He must preach the, the, the perseverance of the saints. He must preach the divine sovereignty of God. How can you preach Christ personally and not preach his doctrines? And what better experience than in preaching Christ? The sufferings of the saints, his agony and bloody sweat, his cross and passion for the true sufferings of the saints are in fellowship with him. Do you want to preach joy? Preach his resurrection, his ascension, his advent. You're never far from the joys of the saints when you're near to the joys of Christ. And what better practice than preaching Christ? Because he is the pattern of every virtue. He is the perfection of human character. If there is anything holy and of good report, it is found in him as the incarnate God. If you want to preach doctrine, if you want to preach experience, if you want to preach obedience, preach Jesus Christ. Did you ever then know a congregation grow less spiritual by a minister preaching Christ? Asks Spurgeon. Did you ever know them get full of doubts and fears by preaching Christ, getting lax in sentiment by preaching Christ, becoming unholy in their lives because they heard too much about Christ? Now, the tragedy is that we can twist all of those things into thinking that we're preaching Christ and going back into those limits of the solely doctrinal, the solely experimental or the solely practical. But, says Spurgeon, learn to preach Christ and you preach everything that you ought to preach. Now, the surpassing excellencies of the subject, and he's really rushing on now. Blessed variety in his preaching, which suits all kinds of persons. So there's this glorious variety. You'll have all manner, says Spurgeon, of precious perfume, myrrh and aloes and cassia. Christ is all sorts of music, everything sweet to the ear, all manner of fruits, not one dainty in him, but many. The tree of life bears twelve manner of fruits. He is all manner of raiment, golden for beauty, warm for comfort, stout for harness in the day of battle. Any other subject you may preach upon until your hearers feel satiety. But with Christ for a subject, feel full that means, but with Christ for a subject, you may go on and on and on till the sermon swells into the eternal song and you begin to sing unto him that loved us and washed us from our own our sins in his own blood. When you preach Christ, there is this infinite fullness, this infinite beauty. He is a kaleidoscope of everything that is glorious and excellent in the revelation of God. And in so preaching, it suits all sorts of people. Are there rebels present? Christ suits them. Pardoned sinners? What better to melt their hearts than the blood of Christ? Doubting Christians? Who can cheer them better than the name of Christ? Strong believers? What is stronger meat than Christ crucified? Intellectual hearers? If they're not satisfied with Christ, they ought to be. Poor, ignorant, unlettered men? Christ, just the thing to preach, a naked Christ to their simple ears. Christ Jesus, a topic that will keep in all climates. Wherever you go, whoever you have to address, you preach Christ and him crucified. Whether they be high or low, Christ suits every kind of person. And now, says Spurgeon, I want to rush on to the power about this subject when it's preached with the demonstration of the Spirit, which is not found in any other topic. And the power that he focuses on here is the promotion of the union of the people of God. Now, just to be 
brief about how Spurgeon arranges this. He identifies three characters. One is almost a Puseyite. That is, he's a very high churchman in the Church of England. Uh, he sniffs a little bit of Roman Catholicism. And someone says, well, I don't like the look of him. And then there's a Presbyterian, a true blue. He cannot bear independency or anything but presbytery, a right covenant man. Well, I like him a bit better, says someone, but I don't suppose we're going to get on very well. Oh, and there's another man down there, says Spurgeon, a very strong Calvinist, ah, says one. I can't admire him. Now, hang on a moment, says Spurgeon, because he's sketched out these little caricatures. That man over there, whom I call almost a Puseyite, that was George Herbert. And Herbert's poetry, says Spurgeon, is something that he loves and quotes often. How sweetly doth my master's sound, and so forth. I hear a knock at the door. Who is that, he says? Why, a very strong churchman. Do not show him in. I'm at prayer. I cannot pray with him. But it's George Herbert. George Herbert? Well, let him in. Let him in. No man could I pray better with than Mr. Herbert. Walk in, Mr. Herbert. In other words, because of Christ, he is united to George Herbert. What about the second man, the Presbyterian, who would not have liked George Herbert at all? Well, that was Samuel Rutherford. Well, says Spurgeon, if we introduce Mr. Rutherford and Mr. Herbert together, I am persuaded that when they begin to speak about their master, they will find each other next of kin. And I feel sure that by this time, Rutherford and Herbert have found each other out in heaven and are sitting side by side. What about that high Calvinist, the Leviathan of Antinomians? That he was a Leviathan, says Spurgeon, I grant, but an Antinomian, that's false. It was Dr. Hawker. Now he says Herbert would not have liked Hawker, and Hawker would not have liked Herbert. And I don't suppose that Samuel Rutherford would have had anything to do with either of them. Spurgeon knows these men from their writings. But Herbert would not have liked Hawker, and Hawker would not have liked Herbert. Samuel Rutherford wouldn't have had anything to do with either of them. But precious Emmanuel, precious Jesus. Those words in his morning and evening portions are repeated again and again. So he says, let a man stand up and exalt Christ, and we are all agreed. I see before me this afternoon members of all Christian denominations, but if Christ Jesus is not the topic that suits you, why then I think we may question your Christianity. That's the real test, isn't it? The more Christ is preached, the more will the church prove and exhibit and assert and maintain her unity. But the less Christ is preached and the more of Paul and Apollos and Cephas, the more of strife and division and the less of true Christian fellowship. Even those who differ on other significant things, if they are united in Christ Jesus, then they have a true union, drawn together because of the Saviour. And, says Spurgeon, the only other power I want to mention is the power of Christ upon the heart of sinners. The most fertile sermons have always been the most Christly sermons. Christ, 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 he says, if we would have men converted. And again, we need to believe that in these days. Not only Christ for the union of the church, not only Christ for true unity. And Spurgeon's already said he's a Calvinist. He said he's a Baptist. He's not pretending that these things aren't significant. What he's calling for is the kind of love to Christ that unites us across those proper boundaries. 
and the preaching of Christ upon the heart of sinners as that which will be God's means of bringing them to himself. If you see others preaching Christ, do not be their foe. Pray for them. Bear them in your arms before God. Their errors may yet be outgrown if they preach Christ. But if not, I do not care what their excellency may be. That excellency shall die and expire like sparks that go out in darkness. What a grief then that we have not yet learned to preach Christ as we should. So pray, says Spurgeon, pray that in this house as well as in all the places of worship round about, Christ may evermore be preached, and I may add my own sincere desire that this place may become a hissing and the abode of dragons, and this pulpit be burned with fire, or any other, ever any other gospel be preached here than that which we have received of the holy apostles of God, and of which Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Let me have your incessant prayers. May God speed every minister of Christ. Well, as we've said, if you could not preach like that, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? If that's total inability to preach, then may God make us more unable in our own strength and wisdom. Let us learn to teach and preach Jesus Christ. We have to leave it here. We're out of time. It's been a wonderful study in these things. It's it's a call to arms, is it not? To speak of all that Christ is as God helps us. To speak about the, the, the Christ who answers every need of every man. To consider the excellency of this and to understand its power. Well, God helping us May we go on to do this and and may we pray too for those who so preach. God willing, next week our featured sermon is 379. The title of that is Perfect Cleansing. We're reading from 374 to 380 and Perfect Cleansing 379 is our featured sermon. I hope you'll return for it and I hope in the meantime that you will either seek out a Christ who is proclaimed that you will seek him out as he is proclaimed, but not just the proclamation of Jesus Christ, but the Christ himself, who a true preacher preaches. And may God then help us to speak him, to hear him, to receive him, and to love him as that true personal Christ who alone is able to save us from our sins. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org to find my Word in Season devotions, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast, or Andy Christofides, A Ransom for Many.